I'm Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast where I offer reflections and conversations about spirituality with or through the lens of meditation, particularly Buddhist meditation or Buddhist Dharma practice, yin yoga, and um, insights as well from Chinese medicine. And uh, I just want to wish you all warm greetings from Maine. It is It feels like spring has finally arrived. There's definitely more pollen in the air, which I can feel in my throat. Um, But we've had a long winter here, and Terry was joking with me today that this is, it feels like we can finally, on May 6th, we can finally put the snow shovel away on the front porch. So in appreciation of spring, I also just want to announce that in June, we will be uh, launching a four-week yin yoga and chi cultivation training immersion this is for teachers of yin yoga this is for practitioners of yin yoga this is maybe for people who don't know that much about yin yoga but want to integrate elements of chinese medicine and the theory of how to stimulate the body whether it's through a posture whether it's through qigong or whether it's specifically through specific forms of acupuncture based self-care, self-myofascial practices with uh, like a a massage ball or a gua sha stone or just self-massage, which in Chinese they refer to as tui na. So this training is a four-week training. Um, It's mostly self-paced with pre-recorded tutorials and lessons that I'll be giving. Um, but the, there will be a weekly, for four weeks, there will be a weekly practice discussion on Fridays um, from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. And those will be recorded. You'll get the replay to those. So if you can come live and participate, great. But if you, for whatever reason, can't, not to worry, everything will be available with lifetime access to all the recordings and materials for your ongoing teaching or your ongoing practice. So there's a link for you in the show notes on this upcoming four-week training around yin yoga and how yin yoga can help us better cultivate our chi, strengthen and circulate our chi through uh, specific use of uh, acupuncture points and their channels to help enhance that chi flow. So uh, we look forward to practicing with you in that training if you're interested. And uh, if you have any questions, shoot me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. In this talk, I take on a, a, a wonderful story I just discovered about some students who were discussing amongst themselves the meaning, the deeper meaning of a passage from Lao Tzu, the Chinese sage. And the passage is, those who know do not say, and those who say do not know. And I try to unpack some of the, maybe the implications for how we go about practicing and what we're uncovering as we practice. Um, through the lens of this particular story and dialogue. So I hope you enjoy today's talk. I hope you will, um, I hope it supports your practice. And if you'd like to train more in yin yoga, whether you've trained in a foundation level with me or with Bernie Clark or Paul Greeley or Sarah Powers, uh, there are many foundational trainings out there. And what we're trying to do with this four-week, 20-hour training is to give a continuing ed option for uh teachers and practitioners looking to integrate more of Chinese medicine into their into their teaching repertoire or practice repertoire. So check that out in the show notes. Uh, we're starting in June. And uh, if you're a member of the Sangha, just as I always say, if you're a member of the Sangha, we give 50% off for workshops, and that would be applied towards this particular training. 
So uh, without further ado, uh, here's today's talk, Lao Tzu's Roses. So for the talk, you know, given that I'm at my mother's house, um, one of the things, and Terry's with me, and this is the first time she's really spent town, time down in my hometown. Um, and it's been interesting because the Terry's hometown, when she, where she grew up for the first eight years of her life before moving to Maine, her hometown was only about 20 minutes from where I grew up. So she grew up in Quincy. Massachusetts, and I grew up in Marshfield. Um, and it's just interesting to, to return to someplace that's familiar and to see the familiar through someone else's eyes and then to see something new about what we thought, what I thought was familiar. And we got down a couple of days ago. Um, but one of the things I've noticed in the morning, I'd forgotten about, this seems like a new dynamic at my mother's place. Um, and I should mention as a context around this, this reflection that uh, her property uh, abuts against an Audubon sanctuary, so a bird sanctuary um, in Marshfield. And one of the things I've noticed in being here is that, and I started to notice this in my meditation yesterday, meditating, being open to sounds and sensations and thoughts. And I kept hearing the sound of something like knocking at a door. She's got a, a glass deck door that she usually enters the house through. So I, I kept hearing this knocking sound. And I'd look up and there's nothing there. <laughs> What's going on? But I paid attention. I kept my eyes open a little bit longer. And um, it was became clear that it was the sound of a, a bird or a couple of birds flying into the, the door, the glass door, or flying into the window. And not at high speed, just sort of like a light tapping, lap bumping. But that sound and, and that experience is actually one that's quite painful to imagine to be a form of consciousness flying and then thinking you're flying in the clear and then suddenly slamming into something. And I don't know all the kind of the neuroscience of perception that birds experience, but um, in my limited capacity to empathize, <clears throat> it just it, it strikes me as quite painful. And given that the name of the Sangha is the river bird Sangha, <clears throat> I thought, well, there's a teaching here. The teaching here. Um, birds in, in our name kind of signify a sense of freedom, a sense of potential of freedom in all of us. And I think as anybody that tries to share teachings about freedom or the experience of, of liberation, um, I imagine, this is what I connect with, is that if, if, if I am able to discover something, whether it's a teaching or a phrase or a way of looking, if I'm able to discover something that liberates me from a kind of flying into something and slamming my head against something, um, I want to pass that on. I want to pass that, 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 that tip on. And so I've, as I've been reflecting on that, um, relatedly, um, 
my mother's house has two staircases and there was an addition built on the house when I was in high school. And so there's a new staircase and there's an old staircase. The old staircase, I don't even know when the house was built, somewhere in the 19th century. Um, but the old staircase, the steps are very narrow. And there's a part of the ceiling that comes down quite low as you get to the bottom of the staircase. Which led Terry to question, when you lived here, when you grew up here, how many times did you bang your head against this part of the, the ceiling coming down? <laughs> and I said, I, I'm sure I did it once or twice, but I don't really have clear memories of that. And so I, I in, in reflecting on it, I, I started to wonder, growing up in these conditions, I probably naturally adapted to the low ceiling and just, you know, involuntarily avoid, turned my head to the side and, 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 and avoided the collision. And as I was reflecting on that theme of kind of, you know, um, you know just de developing awareness of context and adjusting to the context naturally, I started to remember a very different experience I had with, say, low ceilings or low, low doorways, low doorways. Um, <clears throat> many years ago in 1998, I was uh, a volunteer teacher at a very small primary school in Western India, in the state of Gujarat. And this school was uh, located um, within the, a section of an old dilapidated palace. It was a school that was started by the, um, the royal princess of the area. And it was a great experience, and I, I'll probably share more of it going forward again. But my classroom had a very low, uh, I don't even know what to call it, the, 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 low, the low doorway. It had a very low doorway. And it was made of some very substantial stone. And I can't tell you the number of times that at... 10.30 in the morning when it was tea time, when the school would have a break for a re recess where all the kids could play in the courtyard and the teachers would sort of go to the tea station and get their cup of chai and refresh themselves for more, more classes. I can't tell you the number of times I sort of gleefully looking forward to the break would, would stride out my classroom thinking I was walking into the clear morning sunshine and suddenly slamming my head against that low doorway and how disorienting and confusing and painful and, and also unfortunately funny, my students would laugh. <laughs> this would happen, it was like a cartoon. So I'm, I'm saying all these things, you know, trying to uh, in a way concretize um, an approach to our practice in that, um, one way of looking at practice is we're waking up to what's really in front of us. We're waking up to what's really here so we can see things clearly. We're not ignoring the immediacy, the direct truth of our experience. And from that clear seeing, uh, we can uh, better navigate our, our way through what we're experiencing um, and hopefully avoid the kinds of things that 
might we might do, whether it's through behavior or speech or even a thought, of what we can start to avoid the kinds of things we might do when we don't see clearly that cause us to metaphorically feel like we're bumping our, or slamming our head against um, something hard. And we have, or I've been trying to emphasize a, a kind of teaching that focuses our attention on what is referred to as the sense of self, or our felt sense of self, that is trying to do the practice correctly, or trying to do something with the practice to get somewhere, is trying to do the practice to become a better person or to improve in some way. And all of that is incredibly um, understandable. Um, but from the, the depth of many of the world's wisdom traditions, there's a, a kind of injunction or a, a teaching that says over and over again that the path isn't about getting something. It's not about you know, changing the, the face of our personality so much. It's not about rewriting who we are. It's about waking up out of all of that story. And in trying to speak to what it's like to wake up out of that story, different traditions will use different signs. Different traditions will use different words, different concepts, or more broadly, just different signs, like different ways of signifying something on the map of waking up. And I hinted at this last week when I spoke about, you know, the, the importance of reminding ourselves about the difference between a map and its territory. But maps are essentially uh, collections of symbols and the territory to which they indicate or the territory to which they refer is something entirely different. It's related to what the map is, but it's the experience of that, that territory is very different. So you've all heard it, the teachings, the maps, the cues, the books we read, the sutras, the suttas, the discourses, the dharma talks we listen to from anybody. All of that <clears throat> are the metaphorical finger pointing at the moon. So I came across this wonderful story that I included in the newsletter yesterday morning. And I just want to reiterate that story because this story um, very poignantly illustrates this issue of what can be said and what can be known that can't be said or can be understood that can't be said. I'm just going to make sure we're all, there we are. So the story, you probably heard this phrase from Lao Tzu, the Chinese sage. Lao Tzu famously quipped, those who know, do not say. 
those who know, those who know truth, do not speak about it, don't say anything. And those who say, those who speak, those who say, do not know. So as I was reviewing that phrase, those who know, do not say, those who say, do not know. It's one of those phrases that's very helpful to pull out in an argument. If you feel like you're losing in an argument <laughs> or debate and someone's really crushing you with their, their points and their, bullet, their, their, argue, their points of argument, you just finally say, well, look, you're say, you have all this to say, but Lao Tzu once said, those who say do not know. So by virtue of you saying all this, you clearly don't know what you're talking about. Um, so there's one way of looking at it. And the other one is that, well, whoever uttered this phrase, they're uttering something. So then the, the, save is, the, the phrase itself is, is self-canceling. Whoever said the phrase can't be true, can't be speaking the truth. And to a certain degree, I think that, that there's something to that. But in the story that I shared, um, sort of a, a practice discussion story, there are some students hanging around talking about what this teaching from Lao Tzu means, that those who say do not know, or those who do not know, or what's what, those who know do not say, that's what it is, those who know do not say, those who say do not know. So they were discussing this statement, this little phrase, and then their teacher walked in, and they asked their teacher, can you shed some light on this for us? Can you help us understand what did Lao Tzu mean by this kind of paradoxical statement. And the, the teacher said, and asked a question, teacher asked a question. He said, which of you knows the fragrance of a rose? Which of you knows the fragrance of a rose? Which of you knows the fragrance of a rose? <laughs> You're on the call. You know, you, something you will recognize. Or which of you knows the fragrance of fill in the blank? Coffee. Which of you knows the fragrance of baking bread, baked bread? Which of you knows the scent of a unclean public toilet? Sorry to be a little graphic there, but it, it doesn't really matter what you put into that, that statement. There's the, 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 the scent of something, the scent of a rose in this case. And when the, the master asked that question, all the teachers, I mean, all the students nodded along. And they said, oh yeah, we know, we know what the, the scent of a rose is. And then the master said, or the teacher said, well, put that into words. And all the students were silent. So in this, ex this example of the story, the, this, the direct experience of the scent is something that we can all know. The experience is something we know. But to phrase it, to speak it, to, to try to encapsulate it or encompass it with language, to encompass it with images, symbols, we come up short. And... I want to uh, sort of building on the, the, the talk from last week, which really, to summarize that, the, the talk of last week culminated in this reflection from Georg Fürstein around 
how we start or how we where we where do we practice from when we practice meditation when we engage in spiritual practice and this teacher said the place to start is essentially from the sense of self that thinks it can do something to get beyond where it is right now so the, the practice begins with a sense of a me that feels it can get beyond or to do something that so it can get beyond where it is right now so practice begins with this with the the self self-stylized project of becoming something else and when we what we've been exploring the last several weeks is what is it like to recognize that energetic toppling into something like the energetic sense of a self that's that's leaning into that that's moving into trying to get something to happen to get a different experience to get rid of an experience what's it like to acknowledge that to just wake up to oh right now my sense of self would really prefer would really want is worried about this is anxious about that to wake up to all of that and to let it be and to to allow it without squeezing it clinging to it pushing on it pulling on it just to let it be to let that energy discharge of itself and to sense what is present to that <clears throat> what in us is present awake and connected to observing that play of energy in the self and when we do that again and again and again when we see our habits of what we want what we're worried about what we're planning strategizing when we see those habits over and over again within the laboratory of our meditation we start to have a more direct experience of a dimension of our being that like the rose can be known like the scent of the rose can be known but it's very difficult to name it's very difficult to describe so in an attempt to describe the nature of self the nature of who we are as a, a, as a sort of a guide on the path here what i want to emphasize today is that and just let put 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 this on the on the table so that we're all working with sim, a similar understanding or, or moving towards a similar understanding of terms but one, one of the things i want to say is that different traditions will use language that sounds completely oppositional to the other camp's language so one tradition might describe something one way and another tradition might describe it in completely the 100 180 degrees opposite the other direction and it's very easy to get into well this tradition is correct and that tradition clearly doesn't know the time of day and they're all confused and deluded and lost and you get spiritual faction or sp spiritual partisanship and believe me it's that's there's politics and spirituality like anything else so um to give you an example of that how the how the, the teaching can be can sound completely diametrically opposed from another teaching 
if we look at how the Buddha spoke to the path of awakening, the path of waking up, the phrase I've been sharing with you that sort of summarizes the entirety of his teaching is that nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. Nothing is me. Nothing is mine. And if you look into his, his teachings a little bit more, he says, everything that we take to be a self, everything that we take to be a feature of me is actually not me. Not self. And in hearing that, and hearing that nothing that we take to be self is self. It's tempting to think the Buddha is saying there is no self. There is no self. But I want to urge you to consider not making that move. <laughs> or not making that, that intellectual move to say, interpreta- interpreting the Buddha's teachings as him saying there's no self. He's actually silent. The Buddha is silent on what the self is. It's a very important piece. He's, he's, he's in alignment with Lao Tzu. He's in complete, in my opinion, complete alignment with Lao Tzu. That he refuses to say what the self is because he knows that whatever he says about the self, in terms of positive attributes or positive qualities, meaning stating directly what it is will create confusion it will be limited or an incomplete so he refuses to speak about the nature of self he simply says what the nature of self is not and in the context of like what i tried to mention last week the context of this whole discussion in in indian spirituality is that a self in that spiritual philosophical context refers to um, a sense of self that is permanent, eternal, and blissful. Permanent, eternal, and blissful. And all the Buddha is saying is, what we take to be self is not permanent, eternal, and blissful. Like so, we and and then he goes through a very uh, exhaustive, direct and now direct exploration of that. Whether it's looking at the body, no sensation is permanent, eternal, or blissful. Even even blissful sensations they don't last, so it's not eternal bliss. Feelings changing, impermanent not blissful and thoughts you know looking at that so the things we take ourselves to be sensations feelings and thoughts when we look at them when we're awake to them when we're not ignore ignoring the nature of our bodies the nature of our feelings the nature of our thoughts we realize that what we when we are wrapped up in our in a self-identity with those experiences We've essentially um, stepped into a doorway, not realizing how low the door frame was. And boom, we hit our heads. Our sense of self collides with 
conditions. So often Buddhism and, you know, there, this is found in Christianity too, among other traditions, but this is described, the Buddhist path is described as a path in which the teachings are not trying to positively describe, not trying to directly describe the way things are or the way the nature of the self. It's trying to describe what the self is not, leaving to you to experience the scent of self or the scent of the rose of self. So just because it can't be said doesn't mean it can't be known. And in contrast to this, another Indian philosophical tradition, also from the, the larger all-encompassing tree of yoga, which Buddhism is a large branch of, there's another branch of the yoga tree called Vedanta or Advaita Vedanta, which means non-dual. Advaita means non-dual not two. In the Advaita Vedanta tradition, the nature of self is framed more positively. And a great teacher of this tradition, Ramana Maharshi, might utter something like, the self is everything. All there is, is the self capital S. Everything. You are already 100% self. And there's nothing you can do at all whatsoever to become more self than you already are. Now this self that is everything is not this like not like a uh, it's not a statement of rabid egotism. Like, I am everything. The, the, Josh here is everything. It's what the experience, I think, is like when consciousness wakes up out of being limited or wakes up out of being defined by all those other things that the Buddha is saying the self is not. So I'm trying to say this because you know, I, I think we we live in, in a very eclectic spiritual age. And I think there's a lot of positives, mostly positives, I would say, to that um, eclecticism or eclectic uh, ability to draw from all sorts of traditions. But for me, I know um, this really caused me a lot of uh, angst early on, where I was very anxious about putting my good foot forward, my energy forward with a tradition that I could trust that I would, we could feel confident was going to deliver me in the, to what I want to be delivered to. It wouldn't take me astray. But I kept hearing all these different contradictory things, even, even from my own teachers, and from my own teachers, even in the same teaching, like they give a talk or I'd have a conversation with somebody like with Jack, Jack and I would talk about this all the time. And he would often move fluidly from 
talking about a psychological self to talking about more ontological or metaphysical self. And it, it took me a while for my own understanding to come into clarity so that these seemingly contradictory statements didn't make me feel like I was completely lost without a, a, a clue where to go. So you, you've probably all heard the story about the, the elephant that came into a, a king's court and a, a group of people were blindfolded before the elephant came in. And when the elephant arrived, and the, the blindfolded people were, said, were told, put your hand, touch, touch this object, touch this, this, this animal that has just come in and describe what you feel. You, and you've heard this, I think, but one person grabs the ear and declares, this is a fan, a giant fan has been brought into the king's court. And another person grabs the tusk and says, a spear is brought in. This is a spear. A spear has been brought into the king's court. And someone grabs the, 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 um, the tail and says, a rope has been brought into the king's court. And someone grabs his, a leg and says, no, a, a tree trunk is here. And so on and so forth. So when we're limited to one sensory field, one way of you know, reaching out and contacting experience, we may literally grab onto one feature of something. And while we are having a true and direct contact with that part of reality that we're touching, we may not be able to see the whole. We may not be able to take in the whole. So the way I try to look at that teaching about the elephant is that um, Wisdom traditions may speak about truth, the elephant. Wisdom traditions may speak about truth, reality, love, compassion, awakening, freedom, liberation, peace, equanimity. These are words that get used. There's all facets of the same experience of waking up. But traditions will emphasize the experience with different language just like if you smell the flower that's indicated with the word rose and you speak english you might describe it with english words and call it a rose if you speak a different language you're going to use different symbols Or as Shakespeare said, a rose by any, by any other name would smell as sweet. So there's all the language that I kind of spit up in Dharma talks. All the language that I bubble, bubbles out of my mouth. Bunch of words pointing to something immediate and direct, already here 100%. Ramana Maharshi said, I'm going to close with just a, a series of teaching reflections. Ramana 
would say the world is so unhappy because it is ignorant of the true self. The world is so unhappy because it is ignorant of the true self. The Buddha similarly articulated something to the effect that the origin of suffering, the origin of unhappiness, is ignorance. It's the first condition, ignorance, that when it's present, when ignorance is present, conditions suffering gives rise to suffering. So the, both teachers here are using this word ignorance to point to really the root source of stress, the root source of unhappiness. But what's the ignorance of? We tend to, you know, the, there's another whole talk. I'm going to not go on and on about this, but ignorance, when we think of ignorance, we tend to think of someone that, you know, if, if I were to be called ignorant, let's, let's just imagine that Terry and I were in a small dispute and she were to say, gosh, you're so ignorant. Listen to you say that. Or if I were to say that to her or anybody, or if you, someone said that to you, you know, if I were charge of being ignorant, I, A, I would, I know I would seize up and contract in shame, but it would be something I couldn't see, something I was, I had um, never been exposed to or wasn't um, educated to, to be sensitive to. I would kind of feel coarse and uns, almost uncivilized and, and feel a lot of shame around that. But the spiritual ignorance if I just can speak to this shortly, is that it's not the lack of intellectual, social, cultural knowledge or information. Spiritual ignorance is not about not having any of those kind of um, educational programs booted into us or downloaded into us. Spiritual ignorance is much more about just a long-standing confusion about who and what we really are. And I'll, I'll try to speak to this more because I think this is important. But real briefly, I don't. This is something that we grow into. Like the the the, we, I think we're we're actually born this, born into this. It's not that we have this as children or babies, and that we're trying to reclaim or reconnect with a a point in our life when ignorance wasn't present. We were born into it. Some might even, if you're Christian or or, you know. Uh, oriented toward the idea of, of, of sin, original sin. This is, this is what some scholars see as a similarity, the sense of we're born into not understanding. 
And that's our original sin. And from that misunderstanding, a whole cascade of perceptions and behaviors emerge from misunderstanding. But the good news is you've all grown up. You've all grown up to some degree and um, you're all miserable enough with the state of your self that you're looking for release. You've all encountered, you've all experienced enough of the impact of, again, metaphorically hitting your head against the, the low door jam that you want to look more closely at the conditions of your life so that we can navigate without causing suffering. So I, and I, this is sort of a talk without an end, but just to tie these reflections up, um, let me close with a story again. Students were gathered around debating Lao Tzu's famous aphorism. Those who know, do not say. Those who say, do not know. When the master arrived, the student said, teacher, can you help us understand this paradoxical phrase? And the teacher said, which of you knows the fragrance of a rose? All hands went up. The master then said, put it into words. And all were silent. So we're all, when we practice now, we're going to rest into the sense of me, not Josh the sense of you, the sense of a self. Rest into a sense of self. Feel, listen to when a thought, a feeling, a sensation establishes the energy to try to get beyond where you are right now. When we recognize that, we feel that energy and recognize it, the general encouragement is that I try to give is to release any tension, any grasping, any contracture or constriction that you might feel around that energetic impulse. Don't get rid of the energetic impulse. Don't try to stop it. Just bring a sense of spaciousness or ease around it. Like, okay, this is this doesn't have to go anywhere. We can have this, we can hold this right now. And observe things from that position. And really, what I'm trying to get at is feel into what is your self, what is your sense of self like when it's not activated when it's not you know embedded within and activated by 
an energy of pushing away or holding on, denying or clinging. And everything I'm describing does not um, obviate, does not uh, disclude intimate connectivity. So this is a very intimate practice of intimacy within. You'll feel very connected. But what I want you to explore is what is it like to be that intimately connected to what's occurring without the habituated tendency to deny or refuse or cling and hold on. Okay, I hope you enjoy the talk and I hope some of the reflections open up some avenues of exploration for you. And just as a closing reminder, we will be, Terry and I will be offering a new training in yin yoga and qi cultivation. This will be a four-week training in June this year. If you can't make some of the live sessions, not to worry, they'll be available as replays for lifetime access as uh, elements in the, in the lifetime uh, evergreen version of the course you'll have. But if you're interested in applying some insights and wisdom of Chinese medicine into your practice to help stimulate special points that I'm putting together in point prescription practices for the fascia, for harmonization of our energy, uh, for nourishing really exhausted energy, and for promoting a calm spirit. Those are kind of the four main themes we'll be exploring in terms of qi harmonization. There's a link in again in the show notes for the yin yoga and qi cultivation training. And if I don't know, I can't think of anything else to say at the moment, so I'm going to say sign off and say until next episode, stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All my best.